kind of person that takes advantage of every moment I can to catch up on emails and texts. For instance, if I find myself at a stoplight or in line at D&W or in an elevator, I pull out my phone and shoot a quick response. Now this might all sound impressive until you get a text from me saying now when I meant to say no or go blueberry when I meant to say go blue or Mayflower Congressional Church with lower case C for church, which, by the way, cannot be found on Google Maps. I once sent my husband, Mark, a heartfelt text signed XOXO. At the next stoplight, I received his text with multiple question marks and confused face emojis. It wasn't until the next stoplight that I saw that my X's and O's had been corrected to Coco <laughs> as Coco Chanel. I tried to explain, which required a few more stoplights. I've tried to train my keyboard to accept XOXO, but now I just sign off Coco. Of course, I blame autocorrect, that smartphone gremlin that can change our text messages into a game of chance. In the past, we were responsible for our own typos, writes James Glyke of the New York Times. Now, autocorrect has taken charge, and there's, it's no small matter, he cautions, it's a step in our evolution, the grafting of silicone into our formerly carbon-based species in the name of collective intelligence, or unintelligence, as the case might be. The reality is, it's my own fault. I'm going too fast. I'm not giving enough attention to my responses. And in the moment, I pride myself on the speed in which I'm whipping through texts at a stoplight, but later discover that I have made mistakes which now require more time to correct. The convenience of autocorrect has the potential to get me into real trouble. At Mayflower, we have welcomed the new year with the sermon series called Flourish, How to Live a Great Life. As the weeks of 2019 have unfolded, we focused our attention on the Ten Commandments as they're found in the book of Exodus. This book tells the story of how God freed the Israelites from over 200 years of slavery in Egypt. Moses must have been fairly disappointed 
upon realizing that after leading the people out of Egypt, his work had really just begun. None of the work, none of that was work that he had raised his hand and volunteered to do anyway. If you remember, Moses had grown up in the palace as the adopted son, grandson of the Egyptian pharaoh. Surrounded by privilege, we don't know if he ever noticed that the slaves around him, the people his grandfather owned who provided the workforce for massive building projects, we don't know if he ever noticed that he looked a bit more like those slaves than he did his mother or his cousins. But truth will out, and whether he was aware of that truth or not, one night he was walking through the building projects, evaluating the day's work, and he witnessed an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. He jumped in, lost control, and killed that Egyptian, whom he quickly buried in a shallow grave. He thought it was in secret, but the word got out, and we are told Pharaoh sought the death penalty for Moses. Immediately he fled as far east as he needed to go to get away from Egyptian authority, and he found himself in Midian, 285 miles away. I did some math on that, and at three miles an hour for 12 days, we can guess he walked about eight eight days. But it was worth it, because there he lucked into marrying the daughter of a sheep rancher. It wasn't the future he had imagined as a child of Pharaoh's palace, but it was a stable one. And as he looked out over the fields watching the sheep, he must have felt pleased, not to mention a bit relieved. He had landed well. At least that's how he felt until he scanned the horizon and his eyes settled on a bush which seemed to be burning but not disappearing. A voice called out saying he should take off his shoes. He was on holy ground. And then the voice said in so many words that sheep herding was no longer a part of his future. God needed him back in Egypt to go up against the most powerful man in the land to request that the slaves, his own people, should be set free. For sure, this would be a devastating economic topple, and Pharaoh might not take it well, but Moses was advised to ask nicely at first. If that didn't work, God had a few other strategies, ten actually, which may or may not include frogs, blisters, and blood. When we meet Moses in the text that Eric just read for us, all of this is behind him, and the confrontation of Pharaoh's army and the parting of the Red Sea is in the rearview mirror. By Exodus 20, we are 90 days into their journey through the wilderness. They are now at the bottom of Mount Sinai, And no one knows that they are just beginning their journey. There are 40 long years ahead of them. 
But Moses is hoping to quickly get things in order so he can head back to his stable life with the sheep. And the people of Israel are anxious to push forward into a new future, as unknown as it may be. But we know what happens when we want to rush things. When we push forward and don't think about what we're doing. Things get a bit reckless. The newfound freedom of the Israelites seemed to open up all kinds of opportunities. And so Moses went to God and explained that some ground rules need to be established. Guidelines need to be put in place. These people need words to live by. And so we are told they received ten words from God, which we now know as the Ten Commandments. The first word we considered is worship, or as in the English derivative, worthiness. God pronounced on Mount Sinai, do not worship other gods. And we asked ourselves, what would 2019 look like if worthiness were the lens through which we made our decisions, how we allocated our time, our resources? Next, we considered the word Sabbath and how in the rhythm of creation, God rested for one day. And as part of God's creation, we too need to honor the Sabbath by resting. And then we asked, what would our year look like if we embraced a practice of resting? Then we reflected on the word kabod, as in kabod, your father and your mother. And typically we translate that word as honor, but its original roots arise from the concept of being heavy, weighted, hard, rich, glorious. A definition of kabod we explored was that which is heavier than sand. In other words, to kabod is to remain in the place with our relationships, to abide to be steady. Though life's events swirl around us like the sand in the desert, we kabod. What would this year look like if we chose to kabod in and with our relationships? Last week, Mark asked us to consider the word rasah, The Hebrew origin of this word comes from the root meaning root. God seemingly says to the Israelites, when all is new, when you are creating a fresh chapter of your life, do not unknowingly pull up and kill the root, the source of your life. Do not kill or prevent these roots from growing around other lives. What would it look like this year if we minded our roots, the roots of others, as we respect the source of our lives? This week we are combining three of the commandments. 
What they all have in common is low. The Hebrew word meaning no. Low, I was surprised to learn, is only used 73 times in the 905 pages of my Old Testament. However, it's used three times in the Ten Commandments. These commandments talk about how God wants us to honor the life we share with each other. The words are direct, no nonsense. Two of these commandments consist of only two words. There's no nuance, no interesting root words which expand our understanding. As one scholar said, they just mean what they mean. No adultery. Oddly, this is one of the few times Scripture speaks about sexual relations using the same standard for husbands and for wives. In the patriarchal culture from which our Bible arises, different laws often apply to men and to women. But within the social structure, social order that God imagines, families need to be protected. And the best way to do that is to demand faithfulness from both husband and wife. Low adultery. No stealing. Ancient Israel saw property as an extension of oneself. Any theft would be a violation not just of our stuff, but of the dignity of our person, and in turn, the dignity of the God that created us. Low stealing. No lying. There are obvious reasons, but at the very foundation of the society that God imagines is the recognition that justice and fairness and equality for everyone depends on truthfulness. All of us, friends and strangers, families and foreigners, all of us have a stake in a community-wide commitment to truth. Low line. No adultery, no stealing, no line. They seem obvious, don't they? So basic for human beings trying to live together. One has to assume that there is nothing unique about these commandments. And yet the Israelites must need to be reminded as they start a new chapter of their life that not all freedoms lead to flourishing. I suspect the power of these direct, no-nonsense, low commandments is the fact that they are so simple and so present throughout our lives. Within the course of most days, we encounter ever so small opportunities to be unfaithful to the loves that God has placed in our lives. 
Within most hours of our days, we are faced with the ever so tempting opportunities to steal. After two days of no power, your staff was here yesterday preparing for this morning. Beth Shimko and I had a heck of a time getting the right photo for the bulletin cover. We spent far too long struggling to get the right size and the right colors, and we finally found one, only to discover that when we printed, there was subtle letters in the right-hand corner spelling Shutterstock. I would be lying to you if we didn't have a brief conversation about just cropping those letters out. But we stopped that thought and kept looking for another image. Within most conversations, a moment arises to speak truthfully, or to scrimp on the truth, or to remain silent. No adultery, no stealing, no lying. It strikes me that all three of these are so obviously, they barely require any real estate in the Ten Commandments. And yet they are there. Perhaps God knew that these are the areas in which we are most likely to slip when we aren't thinking, when we're going too fast, when we're not paying attention. In a rush, in a culture of busyness, it's not all that hard to inch towards them. As I pondered these Last week, I couldn't help but hear those painfully honest words of Paul. I find this law at work within me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And that which I want to do, I do not do. And into that dynamic... The commandments say no. Concise, definitive, low. They are like lights at an intersection that remind us to stop. Or perhaps the coin we keep in our pocket to remind us we don't want to take that drink. We don't want to slip into worry, into anxiety. Or the ring on our finger or the photo on our desk that reminds us what our no will ultimately protect. And so as we consider our relationships with one another from the most intimate to those across society, what would it look like 
If instead of considering our freedoms, we took notice of the word low. It's a word that could put us on paths that lead to a life of flourishing. A life of reconciled relationships. Genuine happiness. It's a word that protects what is good. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.